This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. Now, before we go on into chapter 2, let me make this clear to you. But chapter 1 is really introductory. Until you come to chapter 10, verse 18. Now look at it. Open your Bibles. Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 18. And there you read, And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice of sin. Period. That's the end of the first part of Hebrews. The second part of Hebrews begins with, Therefore, brothers, and we can include sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, all this Obviously, it refers to the priesthood, which is explained in great detail in chapter 7, 8, 9, and the first part of 10. Now he says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Chapter 11 is about faith. See it? Continue. having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, <coughs> and having our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Hope, chapter 12. Now verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And that's chapter 13. See? Once more, we have an introduction for the second half of Hebrews. That clear? Now we return to chapter 2. Chapter 2. Chapter 1 deals with the divinity of Christ Chapter 2 deals with the humanity of Christ. But first he has to speak a word of exhortation. We already talked about this. Verse 1, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. Now, what are you talking about? Drifting away, careful attention. Oh, I'll explain it to you, he says. Verse 2, For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Now, once more, what are you talking about? The message is the Ten Commandments spoken from Mount Sinai. And Jewish people, you find that in Paul, and you find that in Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, and Paul also, in his letters, say that the Ten Commandments were communicated by God through the agency of angels. 
Okay, now we are right on target. He says, the Ten Commandments spoken by angels or God, using the angels as intermediaries, was binding <clears throat> and every violation of these Ten Commandments and disobedience received its just punishment and now you have not only the law but the entire Old Testament, all 39 books. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation, the salvation which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to those who heard him, another 27 books, not quite because John's epistles and gospel had to be written yet, and not gospel and then the book of Revelation. So, mine is the epistles, mine is the gospel, mine is Revelation. He says, now, you have 20 three, twenty-two books extra. That's a full revelation of God. How do you escape if you ignore such great salvation? Okay, then here's one more verse. God also testified by signs, wonders, various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. And the early missionaries who went out were able to speak different languages. They were also able to heal the sick. All you have to do is read the book of Acts. God was at work by way of his Holy Spirit. Now, then he continues. And he says, now I'm going to talk about the humanity of Christ. I referred already to verse 6. Well, the writer refer, uh, quotes, not refers, quotes, Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. Put everything under his feet. That's a quote. So that's a quote of David. No, he doesn't say that. He says someone, someone testified somewhere. Mm, yeah, okay. <laughs> He's not interested in saying, look, I am telling you where to find it. It's in Psalm 8. You know that David wrote it, but I am now interested in saying that God is giving us this information about His Son. And then he has a commentary. The commentary is this. In putting everything under Him, God left nothing that is not subject to Him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him. Yeah, there's the reality of it all. You'll see Adam and Eve, Adam in paradise, saying to the eagle flying up above, Eagle, come down. Your name is Eagle. He says to the tiger, Tiger, come here. And your name is Tiger. That is, Adam was in full control because he was at the pinnacle of God's creation and God told him to give names to all the animals. He had authority. And so we read, he was crowned with glory and honor and everything was put under his feet. And then we read Genesis chapter 3. The writer says, but we see Jesus 
Yes, here's Jesus in his humanity. Made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Of course, he's not talking about universalism here, not at all. All you have to do is read the next verse, and that rules that out. He suffered death because he wanted to bring many (coughs) sons and daughters, you may add, to glory. It was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Yes, Jesus Christ suffered for us in our place to be our Redeemer. He paid the price. And so he's the author of our salvation, and he through it all has been made perfect through his suffering. And now comes that beautiful text. Oh, I love this text. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, all of us in our brother's family circle have Uncle Charlie. And and we just don't talk about Uncle Charlie. You know, he's the black sheep. (laughs) Well, we have a family gathering and then sort of on the edges there's Uncle Charlie. We are all right. And Jesus says to you and me, I know you're sinners, all of you, but you're my brother and you're my sister. I am making you holy. Read it again, verse 11. Both the one who makes man holy men and women, of course, and those who are made holy are of the same family. He's not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. And then he quotes. In his humanity, he quotes Psalm 22. Now, you know Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, now you go to the end of that psalm. And there you read Psalm 22, verse 22. I will declare your name, O God, to my brothers and sisters in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. That means every Sunday morning, Sunday evening, when you come together for worship, Jesus is in your midst and Jesus sings the praises with you. And then comes the other. From Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17, where you read about Emmanuel, God with us. Again, I will put my trust in him. And here I am and the children God has given me. Beautiful, beautiful. That will preach. Now, then he talks about death and all that, and I'll pick that up in theology. Otherwise, I have nothing to say this afternoon, and I need have to save a little bit for the afternoon too. So, <clears throat> he talks about Abram's descendants are saved, not the angels. Abram's descendants. And he says, for this reason had he, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. And now notice, this is the very first time in the epistle that he talks about the high priest. And he calls the high priest, Jesus Christ, the merciful and faithful high priest. 
that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And I'm going to talk about this afternoon. The word atonement is used in the NIV and I think also in the NASB. Am I correct? Check it. Check it. 2 verse 17. Last part. How does it read? NASB. Propitiation. Wonderful. That's the word I love. Propitiation. I think the RSV has expiation. And we don't have any RSV people around here? Okay. I like the word propitiation and I'm going to talk about it later. Now, because he himself suffered and was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And you look at that verse 18 and you say, no wonder. (laughs) And Jesus being divine, being perfect, without sin... I can easily say, yes, yes, yeah, I've been tempted to, yes, yes, yes. But now you and I steeped in sin. And we are being tempted daily by the evil one. Well, we don't have a chance, Lord. We're not in the same playing field. We want a level playing field. And Jesus will say, yes. Are you offended at all when on television the language is becoming coarser and coarser? You know, there used to be a time in 1939 when Gone with the Wind was shown and the last word which was spoken by Rhett Butler was, No! And what do we hear? The coarse language today is grieved because he's sinless. Jesus can say, done that, been there. Yes. He's tempted by Satan. But every time Satan came to him, Jesus came right back by saying, and this is what the Word of God says. And conquered Okay, I'll move on to chapter 3. Jesus is the apostle and great high priest. Notice how it is put. Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. There's a title. Apostle. One who has been sent by God to be his messenger. You read about it in John 3, verse 32. Jesus is sent as a messenger of God. And a high priest, not just a priest, a high priest whom we confess. Now, he's going to go into it in great detail in chapter 5 and again in chapter 7. But here already, he is laying the foundation is constructing the framework. And then he says, well, Moses was faithful in God's house, but Christ is faithful over God's house and he is far greater. And we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope which we boast. Verse 6, chapter 3, 6. 
Now, what does the writer do? He quotes Psalm 95. Psalm 95 was sung by the people of Israel when they went to the synagogue worship service either on Friday evening or Saturday morning. They would sing Psalm 95. Now, turn with me to Psalm 95, will you? Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is a great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands form the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Now, isn't that great for worship? Yes. And then comes the second part. Yeah, these two <laughs> parts don't belong together. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Because you come before God as sinners. And now I read, <clears throat> continuing, second part of verse 7, Today if you hear his voice, Verse 8, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah. This whole story connected with Meribah. As you did the day at Massah in the desert. And again, a whole story connected with that. Meribah means quarreling. Massah means testing. Where your fathers tested me and tried me. Yes, ten times you tried me. You read about that in Numbers. Let me quickly look this up. Numbers. Chapter 14. Verse 22. Where he says, Not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs had performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised an oath to their forefathers. Okay, continuing with Psalm 95. It says, Your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, They are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. And then he continues and he says, So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. In other words, what he is saying is, repent. Repent. Because God is saying, on oath, you shall never enter my rest. What does that mean? Well, I remember very clearly and you probably do too. In 1973, we, we had the oil crunch. 
President Nixon said, I decree, executive order, that the speed limit on the highway shall be 55 miles an hour to conserve gasoline. Well, that law was enforced and police officers were busy. What is it today? Well, we drove through the state of Wyoming a couple of weeks ago. 75 miles an hour. Go, 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 go. Wide open spaces. Yeah, if you can go 75, because that's the speed limit, you go 80. And they do. They fly. Now, that's a law. And we repeal a law. And we change a law. But an oath, when it is made, can never be repealed. So when God says, in my wrath, in my anger, I declared an oath, he says it will never be repealed. They shall never enter my rest. And now you have to figure out what is meant by rest. Those people in the desert were not allowed to enter the promised land. Okay, so that's rest. So the wandering of the Israelites and the warfare of the Israelites came to an end when they entered the promised land. And these were all 20 years old and younger when God said this way back at Mount Sinai. Okay, now continue reading with me, will you? Well, in chapter 3, verse 12, and first he has a word of exhortation. He says, see to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. In other words, what he is talking about is corporate responsibility. All of you, not just the pastor, the elders, or the deacons, all of you are responsible when you see someone drifting away. You call that person back. That's your job. Now we read verse 16. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they are not able to enter because of their unbelief. And now, class, I refer you to my commentary, <clears throat> this is found on page 97, bottom of the page, and <clears throat> just make a note of that and listen. <clears throat> According to Numbers chapter 1, the census of the Israelites took place in the second year after the people came out of Egypt. And the total number of men, 20 years and older, who were able to serve in Israel's army was 603,550. You find that in Numbers 1, verse 46. You may want to take a, take a note of that. Numbers 1, 46. That is, 
men 20 years and older, 600,000 roughly speaking, 603,550. Double this number. This assumes an equal number of women who were 20 years or older. And divide the total of, by the number of days the Israel, Israelites spent in the wilderness during those 38 years. The result is nearly 90 funerals per day in consequence of God's curse. 90 funerals a day. That's God's wrath. And now, don't come to me and say, well, they died in the desert, but their souls went back to God who gave them, and they are now with the Lord forever. We're talking about God's rest, God's spiritual rest. And he says, they shall never enter my, and I put it in, spiritual rest. So we now go on to verse 1 in chapter 4. The writer still is not finished with the whole problem. <clears throat> he says, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let, let us be careful that none of you to be found to have fallen short of it. <clears throat> See, that's the same thing which you find in <clears throat> verse 13. Encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That's 3.13. 4 verse 1. And also look at 4 verse 11. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. So, three times in two chapters does he say, you and I have the corporate responsibility of working with those who slip away. Good. Look at verse 2. bit difficult here. Chapter 4, verse 2. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. You mean just people in the desert receive the gospel? <laughs> and the answer is yes. When God speaks to us and gives us his promises, that is the gospel. Because the gospel means, euangelion means good news. And the Jewish people in the desert received good news. God spoke to them. And said to them, I love you. I provide for you. Look, these people are traveling through the desert for 40 years. Just stop and think a moment. Their shoes didn't wear out. Their clothes didn't wear out. They were never sick. There were no doctors. There were no hospitals. Not only that, but traveling through the desert, and if you've ever done so, Go, try to go to California and go through needles in the heat of the day. I'm, I'm glad we have air conditioning. But now you don't have air conditioning. You have to walk. And God 
put a cloud between the sun and its people to protect them from the heat of the day and cause a wind to blow and make it comfortable. And have you ever been in the desert at night? You know, the temperature drop, 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 drop. <laughs> Rather chilly. And there's that pillar of fire by night to keep them comfortable. So day by day and hour by hour, God's grace and goodness was seen. They experienced this. Manna by day, quails by way of meat. Look, God provided for everything. And yet, they fell away. You know, the amazing picture is, and I think you find that in Exodus chapter 33, that here is Moses on top of Mount Sinai, and God had taken two tablets of stone and written with his finger the Ten Commandments, gave them to Moses and said, okay, now you take these back to the people of Israel. So Moses is standing on top of that mountain and is looking down, and what does he see? Well, you guessed it. Aaron making a golden calf and the people worshipping a golden calf. Well, no wonder that Moses took these two tablets and stone, threw them away. Useless. And yet he goes down and he says to God, take my life, but not their life. Now, one other thing. I'm drifting a little bit, but stay with me. And then, they're about ready to enter the promised land. And the people are grumbling. Now, these are the 20 years old and, and higher by now, right? The new generation. And they are grumbling because they don't have water. And God says, speak to that rock. Moses takes his staff and you rebellious people and he strikes that rock. Well, water came out. But God was angry with Moses and said, because of this, you shall not enter the promised land. Now, why was God so harsh with Moses? He all along had been the leader. And now, well, <laughs> instead of speaking, he took that staff and hit the rock. You know, we raised teenage boys and I would say something to them, let's say it's supper time, and they, oh, dad, in other words, <laughs> don't be so picky. Can we say that to God? See, why did God say to Moses, because <coughs> you struck the rock, which is that, you will not enter the promised land. And Moses prayed later on. He said, oh Lord, please. I'm here standing on Mount Nebo, and I can see Mount uh, <clears throat> oh, what's it? Hermon, way in the distance, and I can see the promised land. Oh, oh, I'd love to enter. No, Moses, no. Why not? The answer is, here comes, Moses was the mediator between God and his people. 
all along you read that Moses was saying to God, take my life. Not the people. <clears throat> I know they sinned, but please, Lord, forgive, forgive, forgive. And then he lost his cool. And he was no longer the mediator. And God said, no, not you, Moses. I'll take you and you'll be with me in heaven. But Joshua, which is the Old Testament name for Jesus, may you call him Jesus, shall lead the people across the Jordan into the promised land. Joshua is the one, Jesus. You see it? You know, Scripture has a lot to say. If we do a little bit of thinking, a little bit of studying. Verse 2, <clears throat> For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard did not combine it with faith. So we're talking about the Old Testament people, God's people, but these people had to hear the gospel, the good news of salvation, and combine it with faith. Now he says, let's talk about rest. The Greek word is katapausis, which means a continual rest of sitting down, relaxing. So he begins to explain this. We have a commentary on the word rest. Note verse 3. Now we who have believed enter that rest. Just as God has said, quote, So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never, and that is in no wise, absolutely not, enter my rest. What kind of rest is this? Well, he is an example from Genesis. His work has been finished since the creation of the world. Because, and now is the, here's the quote, And on the seventh day God rested from all his work. It says in verse 5, And again in the passage above it, he says, They shall never enter my rest. And this is spiritual rest of entering the presence of God. That is, spiritual rest where there is no sin. How do you explain and interpret the fourth commandment? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And some people think that all you have to do is go to church Sunday morning for an hour and God should be pleased with you. There is the interpretation by way of the Heidelberg Catechism of 1861. This was written up by a Polish reformer and a preacher, Zacharias Ursinus, 
was the writer. And the preacher helped along a little bit. That was Caspar Olivianus. And they interpret the Ten Commandments in the Catechism. And when you come to the fourth command, they say it is not just on the Sabbath day or holy day that you rest from your evil works. But every day of the week, all along, you are commanded by God to cease sin, practicing sin. That's rest. If you have that concept now of giving up working in sin, evil works, then look at what you have here. God rested. It's a spiritual rest. And if we come into a sacred presence, we must rest as well. God rested on the seventh day. And again in the passage above he says, they shall never enter my rest. Verse 6, it still remains that some will enter that rest and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. You can almost predict at what level people are who fall away from the living God. Here they are. Number one. The first step into sin is unbelief. Number one, maybe you'd like to jot this down. You know it doesn't hurt to put it down on paper. Unbelief, number one. Number two, disobedience. Number three, neglect. What I mean by neglect is failing to go to church, read your Bible, be in prayer. Number four, apostasy, falling away. And number five, hardening of the heart. Now, you have these in a row, I hope. Now what you have to do is look at the positive. So for unbelief, you have on the other side of the coin... Faith. The opposite of disobedience is hearing obediently. The opposite of neglect is steadfastness. The opposite of apostasy is entrance to life. And I talk about spiritual life. And the opposite of hardening is salvation. So if someone falls away, you see him slip. He is in sin. And you see the steps until finally you have the hardening. And then there is no hope anymore. I have much more to say about falling away because the author has plenty to say about that in chapter 6 and we'll get to that quite soon. Now continuing. 
verse 7 of chapter 4. Therefore God again set a certain day, calling it today. Is that just today? <laughs> you know, the 25th of June, so to speak. No, no. Today must be seen here as the present. Time of the present. A long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then verse 8, note how he puts it. This is a reference now to history. For if Joshua had given them rest, that is, rest from their nomadic life in the desert, rest from being the soldier in Israel's army, God would not have spoken later about another day. He says, there remains therefore a Sabbath rest. Now, the first one happened to be catapulses. There it is, catapulses. Rest. That is, from your labors. And then we have the word sabbatismos. And that is God's rest. A Sabbath rest. And note how he explains it. Verse 9. There remains then a Sabbath rest, a sabbatismos, for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work just as God did from his. You put aside all that is evil, all that is sinful, and that's how you should live in God's presence. And then comes the exhortation. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Once more, corporate responsibility. Now, then he has an insight. He talks about the Word of God. Verse 12 for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It is. Don't come to God with excuses. Oh, Lord, you know that I, I'm so weak. And I, I just give in, Lord. No, God says, Look, you have my word, and that word cuts like a two-edged sword. So if you are the preacher on a Sunday morning, that word cuts to the members of the congregation. At the same time it cuts you. Don't forget, you too are judged. It penetrates the dividing of soul and spirit. And how do you divide soul and spirit? Pneuma and psuche. I've learned a little bit of Greek. Yes, yes, I know. Now tell me. Oh, here's another one. Joints and marrow. Now how do you get the marrow out of a bone? Huh? No, I leave that to the butcher. 
How do you judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart? Do you say, oh, let me have a look into your soul a moment? No. No. That's for the Word of God applied by the Spirit of God. And God will do His work with you and in you. So, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. (laughs) The Greek... (laughs) You know, in English we have to cover things up. You can't be so <clears throat> so literal. But really what it says here, laid bare like the neck of a lamb as you cut the throat. That's the idea. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before God. Take a moment out. And I am going to produce, I hope so, a dollar bill. There it is. See it? And here you have the seal, the great seal of the United States. That's a pyramid. And at the top of the pyramid, you have the all-seeing eye of God. So that means that God's eye is upon you when you buy and when you sell. Now there is some Latin right here at the top. It says coitus annuit. And then at the bottom it says novus ordo seclorum. This goes back to 1776, the day of independence. And the artist who designed the great seal of the United States. They not only say, oh, God's eye is upon you, but also said, Anuit Coitus, which means God nodded his approval on this young nation, the new order of things. In other words, this dollar bill goes back to a Christian base. God's eye is upon you. Well, enough of that. That was my illustration. I continue. Chapter 4, verse 14. Martin Luther. When he was translating the New Testament from Greek into German... 1523, when he came to chapter 4, verse 14, he said, that's a new chapter. That should be 5, verse 1. So if you go to a German Bible of Martin Luther, you will see that chapter 5 begins at 414. Why? Well, read it with me, will you? Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Now, you can talk about a priest, and then you say the high priest, that's where it stops. See, you have senators, 
First you have congressmen, then you have senators, and then you have the president. And there's nothing above the president, humanly speaking. And the writer of Hebrews says, we have a great high priest. That is, one who is above all the other high priests. He's the one and only who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. And now he's going to repeat what you found at the end of chapter 2. He's talking about the temptations of Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Ever heard about the Jesus Seminar? Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. The Jesus Seminar tries to teach you that Jesus was just a man. Well, actually, they're saying exactly the same thing as in the late 1960s when the superstar Jesus came out. And in that superstar, you have the line, he was just a man, just a man. And the Jesus Seminar people say exactly the same thing, he was just a man. Sinful. What? Have you never read verse 15 of chapter 4? Yet was without sin. There it is. And then he says, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's a beautiful text. Approach the throne of grace boldly, with confidence. You may open your mouth and speak to God, to God himself. And then you, notice how it is put, receive mercy on the one hand and find grace to help us on the other hand. And God will hear and answer. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.